My name is Jennifer Fulweiler. I was a lifelong atheist and I'm now a Christian. I write a blog called Conversion Diary. It's a chronicle of the ups and downs of what it's like to have faith after an entire life of being an atheist. I never believed in God, not even as a child. When my dad would come read books to me at night, I believe I was in fourth or fifth grade, and our nightly reading was Carl Sagan's Cosmos. <laughs> so I was very much raised on a diet of science and reason and evidence-based rational thought. You believe what you can prove. I believe that I have hands because I can see them. I believe in a black hole, even though I've never seen one, but you know, science can tell us about the way matter moves around it that we can observe. And so this very rational worldview always made sense to me on a fundamental level. Before I got to the point that I could really start researching faith with an open mind, something had to happen. And for me, that occurred after my first child was born. I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheist materialist perspective, he is a collection of randomly evolved chemical reactions. And I realized if that's true, that all the love that I feel for him, that it's all nothing more than chemical reactions in our brains. And I looked down at him and I realized that's not true. It's not the truth. And I didn't know where to go from there, but that's what prompted me to start researching topics of spirituality. I got my books about Buddhism and, you know, and about every religion except for Christianity, basically. I assumed that anything could be true except for Christianity. And my husband, who considered himself a non-practicing Christian, said, you might want to start with the one major world religion whose founder claimed to be God. After all, that's a really easy claim to disprove if it's not true. And I thought, well, that's a fair point. I was such a through-and-through through atheist that I have to admit, I was ignorant of all these great Christian thinkers. What about Thomas Aquinas? <laughs> what about Augustine? What about Descartes? I mean, all of these great thinkers throughout history were not only theists, but Christians. And I was really surprised when I actually found these very intellectually rigorous books where people talked about their faith from a place of reason and not a place of emotion. And when I looked at evidence like that on the whole, I started to think something explosive, something world-changing happened in first century Palestine. You have this guy named Jesus who comes from a lower class region, gains a bunch of lower class followers, and ends up being executed by the Romans. And yet in droves, you see thousands and thousands of Jews giving up these traditions that they had held dear for thousands of years. And the people who joined in on this new religion, there was no benefit for them. It was a persecuted religion. People who joined this religion didn't tend to work out too well. They tended to lose social status and often face death. But I wasn't yet you know, convinced and, and ready to become a Christian. And so I started a blog. I just threw out every hard question I could think of. I just put it all out there on the blog. And as I would watch the atheists and the Christians go back and forth and debate, I realized we atheists 
We don't have the lock on reason that I thought we did. But what I saw with the Christians was they had that too. They had all the knowledge of science and material world that, that we atheists did. But yet they had the total picture of the human experience of love and triumph and hope. And, you know, they could articulate that in a way that the atheists couldn't. It wasn't until after I had made the intellectual decision to become a Christian that I think I finally believed it in my heart. When I set my pride aside and said, okay, I feel like I'm talking to myself, but Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I, I want to know you, even though I don't know how to go about doing that. This peace entered my life, this joy, the way my whole being was transformed there was just no question that this is somebody real. I think that not only am I more alive uh, now that I'm a Christian, but I'm so much more intellectually alive. Finally, nothing is off limits. I can ask questions about science, but I can also ask questions about the spiritual world, and I'm free to really seek the truth. In this video, uh, Jennifer gives some really good... uh, a recap of kind of where we started this new series last week. And she, she says a couple things that, that really help us realize how is it that rational, logical thinking adults become believers. And she says two things. I don't know if you picked up on this. She says, first, um, something happened in my life that changed my opinion of my need for God. And, and that was the birth of her child. She said, look, you know, last week we said a lot of times it's, it's uh, something negative, some tragedy happens, but sometimes it's something good. And for her, it was the birth of this child that, that brought to light uh, all these questions and things that started rolling around in her mind, and she realized that there had to be a God. There had to be something. And the second thing she said is, is what I think is probably the most important. She realized that she had to set aside her pride. She had to set aside her pride, and, and that's really what we're going to look at this morning, is that, you know, not only does it become personal, but you've, you've got to set aside your pride. She didn't say, I set aside my intellect. She didn't say, I set aside all my questions, but I set aside my pride. And if you're going to have a relationship with God, I, I do believe there's an aspect of your pride that you have to set aside. And so we're going to talk about that this morning as we, as we look at coming to terms. What is it that we come to terms in our relationship with God? And Last week, you know, we started this series, uh, When the Light Comes On, by, by looking at, you know, what is it that, that has to change in our lives? We have these questions, and, and we used, um, we said, you know, a lot of people say, well, I can't just set aside all my questions and become a Christian and just never think about these things again. Um, and we said, well, you know, usually what happens is something happens to shrink those, those questions, those obstacles that you have to the faith. And who remembers the illustration that we used last week? Does anybody remember it? Single guys, getting married, right? Do you remember that? We talked about how guys, when we loved being single, most of us enjoyed our time being single, and we had a list of reasons of why we didn't want to get married, but something came along and moved marriage from being a category that we thought about and made lists and reasons for why we didn't want to be married. Uh, Something came along. We met, in my case, Amanda. Right? You meet a girl, and you're no longer really thinking about committing to marriage as much as you're committing to Amanda. And so we talked about how you could make all these reasons for, 
for why you don't want to be a Christ follower, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal to, to be a Christ follower, and, and it means submitting your, your life to him, right? We're not talking about a believer. We're not talking about American. We're talking about being a Christ follower, saying, not only am I placing my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I'm choosing to follow him as my, as my Lord, as the leader of my life. And that means handing over your relationships, your marriage, your friendships. That means handing over your morals. And whenever you face a life situation and, and you're facing a decision, you look to Scripture and you say, this is what Scripture says. The debate is over. This is what I need to do. Right? And we could come up with a list of reasons of why we shouldn't do that. And some people do that. And we could take that list and we could go through each argument. Maybe your friends or your neighbors have a list like that. And you could take it and you could go through each argument and say, well, here's where this is wrong. Like, we could do that. We could answer all those questions. The video we watched was from a series that we went through in the fall called Explore God. We looked at all those questions. Why is there suffering in the world? Is the Bible reliable? We looked at all of those things. So you can sit down and you can answer people's questions and you can win the argument. But are they any closer to a relationship with God? Or do they just have more information? They just know a little bit more. And that's not our desire, is for people to just have head knowledge, but that they would have a real relationship with God. You know, the same way we made a list for why we shouldn't get married, guys, um, I think you could, you could make a list for, for why you should have no more than two kids. Right? Now you can come up with some really compelling reasons of why you need to stop at just two kids. Right? And well, the first one of those that comes to my mind is transportation. Like if you have more than two kids and you've got more than two in a car seat, you, you're stuck in a minivan, man. I, mean, I don't care. Uh, you're in a minivan. There's, there's no other option. You're not fitting two seats in your subcompact car. And then not only that, as they get older, they get out of the car seats, you go on a trip, what are you going to hear? Dads, what do you hear? I don't want to sleep together. He's in my seat. He's in my space. He's looking at me. His knee's touching me, right? You, I, I was the third child in my family, so I know this is true, right? So you're stuck in the middle, and someone is always in your space. There's like this imaginary line that that's your space. Not only that, but, but you've got issues with, with housing. You've got three, two kids. You've got a three-bedroom house. Everything's great. You have that third kid. Where do you put them? Like, where are they going to sleep? Not only that, you go into the spare bathroom, and, and what do you find in the spare bathroom? You have, you have three bedrooms, two bathrooms. That second bathroom's got two sinks. Somebody's going to have to share a sink, or somebody's brushing their teeth over the toilet, right? And that's just messed up. Your third kid's over the toilet like this, brushing his teeth, because there's not a sink for him. Right? And you, you have transportation, you have food. And, and I can tell you, in my family, this was a big deal for the third kid, because it's always the third kid that's the picky eater, right? First two, they'll eat anything. You have that third kid, man, it's like, I'm not eating this. So then mom's got to figure out, what, do, what am I going to do with this third kid? I've got to find a meal that this third kid could eat. Not only that, you've got your parental attention. Man, you've got two kids, it's one-on-one. You have that third kid, you're automatically in a zone defense, and you don't know where to go. And, and I, we know this is true. Not everybody has three kids all at once like we did, but man, we were at a zone defense from the beginning. You, did, you had one kid laughing, one kid crying, and then you had one kid doing something else, and you didn't know what to do. You just, you had to make it work. But here's, here's the big one. Middle child syndrome, right? Do we have any middle children in here this morning? All right, that's probably why you're here. This is free counseling for you. Uh, you're a middle child. Man, that, that firstborn is like 
mom and dad's pride and joy. If it's a son, it gets dad's name. It's junior or the third or, or it gets, you know, the, the special names. And then that second child is born and he gets to be the baby for a while and, and everything's going great. And then about a year or two later, mom and dad bring home this third baby. And it's like, well, hold on a second. You know, I, I'm not the oldest and I'm not the baby. Like, what happens to me? You know, like, what happens to the middle child? And, and everybody, and I'm speaking from experience as the youngest, everybody loves the baby. Like, everybody loves the baby. I know it's true. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter how old you get. You can be 2 or 32, you're still the baby. Like, I go home, and I'm still the baby in my family. And you get stuff because you're the baby. It's great. Uh, but you're the middle child. Man, you get the shaft all the time. Like, you're the one that always gets left out. And in fact, there's a, there's a national holiday, Middle Child's Day, uh, but you probably all forgot about it. So, uh, no big deal. Uh, so we can sit and we can make these lists and we can say it's easy, it's easy to say, you know what, yeah, I shouldn't have more than two kids. But it becomes really personal for some of us, right? When you're that third kid, it becomes really personal. Or when you're mom and dad and you have that third child, becomes really personal. Like I said, not everybody is as is, is lucky as my wife and I are, as blessed as we are, that you get to have three kids all at once. But I still remember the day that we went in uh, for that very first ultrasound. As far as we knew, my wife was pregnant. We, did, we had no clue there was even a possibility of like triplets. And we go in and they're doing the ultrasound and they said there's one, two, three heartbeats. And I'll, I'll never forget this because I don't think I've ever been more angry in my entire life. Because the doctor looked at my wife and said, you know how dangerous it is to have multiples, especially my wife's pretty small if you've seen her. Um, they said, we think you should consider fetal reduction. And I, I had to it's like sit on my hands to keep from punching the doctor in the face. It was, I was so angry. I was so angry that, that that would even come out of his mouth. But, you know, for, for that doctor, he was talking about babies. He was talking about a category. For us, we had seen the heartbeat, and these were our babies. These were our beautiful little children. And part of me wants to drive back to Dallas every year on their birthday and say, which one of these three did you want to reduce? Like, which one of these three? And you put a face with those, name, with those, those little heartbeats, and all of a sudden it becomes very, very personal. But even with three, man, I could come up with reasons why we shouldn't have more. And uh, to be honest, we weren't planning on it. And we had that fourth, and Amanda told me I'm pregnant. And I was like, (laughs) having a heart attack. How are we going to afford this? Where are we going to put the baby? We're out of room. All those same reasons for why you shouldn't have more than two kids. And then we went to the first ultrasound. We saw that little bitty heartbeat. And all of a sudden, it went from just being fourth baby to our baby. As we went on and had more ultrasounds, it went from being just a baby to a baby girl, baby girl named Eve. And so in September, you know, we're going to welcome baby, baby Eve, and, and it just becomes very, very personal. The same way that when adults become Christians, it's generally because something happens that helps them realize that it's very, very personal, that God acted in a very, very personal way. Like the introductory statement to Christianity is very, very personal. And you're like, introductory statement to Christianity. You all know it. 
Even if you're here and you're not a believer, your family members that aren't a believer, they know it. Right? I'm going to give you the first two words and you're going to finish it. Don't put the, don't put the verse up there yet. I'm going to give you the first two words and I bet you can finish it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. God loved the world so much when we were all so messed up. He loved the world so much that he acted. And he acted in a personal way by sending his own son to die on the cross for the penalty for our sins. Right? He acted in a very, very personal way. And this is kind of the introductory statement to Christianity. But it goes back even further than that. You know, they say uh, you can find out who your true friends are in in the darkest times of your life. Right? When things are going bad... Uh, you lose your job, you're, you're having problems, you get sick, you really find out who your friends are. And it's the same is true with God. When we were at our darkest spot, we found out who our true friend was, who was there for us, who wanted that personal relationship with us, and it was God. You go all the way back, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning, starting in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And you go all the way back to Genesis and, and you see from the very beginning, like you want the answer to the question, why is, how can there be a good God and the world be so messed up? You, you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you read, it's because of you and it's because of me. That when God created, he created man with, with the ability to choose whether or not he was going to have a relationship with God. And because of our own selfishness, because of our own sin and because of our own rebellion, we chose the wrong thing. We chose to break that relationship with God. Each and every one of us did. Even through Adam and Eve, through Adam and Eve, each and every one of us have made that decision. Like, we're in a bad place. And it got worse from there. In fact, it got so bad that by chapter 6 of Genesis, God says, you know what, I'm going to come along, I've got to clean this mess up, and I'm going to hit the reset button. He hits the reset button by flooding the whole earth, and he saves Noah and his family. Uh, you know, Noah was, was uh, found favor in God's sight, but we read the very next chapter, Noah gets off the ark, and he messes it all up again. Noth- nothing changed. But then we get to chapter 12, a few chapters over, and we read the story of a man named Abram, who's later named, how you know him, Abraham. And God acts in a very, very personal way through a personal relationship with Abraham. This is what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and, those, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God starts out by saying, Abraham, first, before any of this stuff happens, you've got to leave the place where you live, because I don't want people to be confused. I don't want people to think that, that this is happening to Abraham, that Abraham is being blessed because of anything that Abraham has done, right? At, at this time, the, the world was, was really messed up. People were trying to understand how to have a relationship with God. They had, no, they, they had an idea, but that everyone was getting it wrong. They were treating God like this 
cosmic vending machine. You know what I mean by that? Like you put enough quarters in, you kick it a couple times, and candy pops out, right? And they've thought, well, this is how I need to treat God. I need to do the right things and push the right buttons, and then I get what I want. So when they came to questions like, well, well how, do I, you know, how do I make my crops grow? Well, if, if maybe if I cut myself, then God will be happy and the rain will come. You know, how do, I, how do I have a baby? Well, maybe if I go make all these sacrifices, my wife will get pregnant. Or, or if I need something really big, maybe if I sacrifice my kid. And, and God, God sees all this and he says, this is not right. Let me show you how to have a relationship with me. And he demonstrates this through Abraham. And he gives Abraham three promises. He says, first, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. What is that nation? Who knows? Israel. Right? He makes him into a great nation. Then he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name great. Do you know how many kings and rulers from that day there, there are recorded in history? Almost all of them. I mean, we can go back and we can find out all these kings and rulers and, and we can learn their names, but how many of you could name one? But how many of you, before this morning, how many of you have heard of Abraham? Right? How many of you know this song? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg. Nod your head, turn around, sit down, right? We, we know that song. Our kids know that song. We know who Abraham is, and he becomes this very important person, even though in his day, he was nobody. He wasn't some big shot. He wasn't at the top of the heap, and God says, come on, I'm going to take the, the top of the top. No, he's just some poor peasant. God comes along and says, I'm going to have a relationship with you. Not only am I going to have a relationship with you, but because of my relationship with you, all peoples are going to be blessed. All peoples are going to be blessed. And we know that that comes through Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, born into the nation and the tribe of Israel. Right? Skip over to chapter 15. God has made all these promises to Abraham. He calls him to leave. He says, go, leave, leave all this. And so he does. He makes these promises. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm, I'm going to do all of these things. And we come to a number of years later when Abraham is very old, his wife is old, and they still have no kids. And this is what happens. Abraham says, look, I guess I'm going to have to leave it all to one of my servants. I don't have any kids, God. I'm going to leave it all to one of my servants. And God says, no, you're not. You're going to have a kid. And Abraham's like, yeah, that's, that's going to happen because I'm old. And God says, all right, go outside, Abraham. This is what he says, starting in verse, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside in verse 5 and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, I... I don't know how this happened. I don't know if God said, Abraham, let's uh, go outside and count the stars. And Abraham says, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Wait, did I count that one? Let me start over. Like, I don't think that happened. I think he says, count the stars. And before Abraham can even say, God, that's impossible. There's too many. God says, so shall your offspring be. 
so shall your offspring be. And this next verse is like a compass setting for the rest of the Bible. This one verse directs us and tells us how God has chosen to relate to man and how he expects man to relate to him. This is with chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord. He's over 80 years old. His wife is old. They have no kids. God makes him this promise. Do you think Abraham had questions? Like how many of you at this point would have questions for God about how is this going to happen? Like how is this even possible? But because of the personal relationship with God, it says Abraham believed God. He believed God. Now here's the best part. Continue on in verse 6, he says, And he, the Lord, God, credited to him as righteousness. Because Abraham believed God, God said, you have a right standing with me. We have a relationship because of your trust, your faith in me. And this one statement sets the stage for the rest of Scripture for the rest of God's story. Trust me. Here's what we learned from Abraham. What we learned from Abraham is first this, that, that God comes to you on his terms and not yours. God comes to you on his terms and not yours. And God, God is the one who gets to set the terms. And for a lot of people, this is the most offensive thing about Christianity is that they don't get to set the terms. They don't get to say, I'm going to do enough good things. I'm going to go to enough church services. I'm going, to, I'm going to give enough to the church, and then I have right standing with God. And they don't like that they don't get to set the terms. God sets the terms, and many people find this offensive. But should we be offended that a God who can speak all things into creation, a God who is powerful enough to say, let there be light, and there was, a God who is able to create something from nothing, a God who is able to breathe life into you and me and sustains each and every one of us? Are, should we be offended that, that a God that is that powerful gets to set the terms? Like, would you want it any other way? Would you really want to serve a God that was so wimpy and so weak that you got to tell him the terms of the relationship? I don't want to serve a God like that. A God like that is not worthy of worship. God sets the terms. God sets the terms. You know, our terms, when we do try to set them, are usually our obstacles. God, if you'll answer this question, then I'll believe in you. God, if, if you'll show me this, if you'll prove this, if you'll do this, God, if you'll do it in my timing, and I'm not talking just about non-believers here, I'm talking about believers. We even do this in our relationship with God. Yes, we have faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, but how many times have you made this deal with God? God, if, if you'll do this for me, I promise I'll stop this whatever sin. God, if, if, uh, if you'll, you know, you've called me to be a church planner, you want me to leave our church where we are, where I've got a good job, I could stay here for the rest of my life, you want me to sell my house, leave my friends, sell half my stuff, and move to a city where I don't know anybody, and plan a church. Okay, if you can show me where my income's going to come from, you can guarantee that, you know, we're going to, like, be a church of 500 in the first year, and, and we're just going to be extremely successful, then yeah, I'll go do it. 
Or do we step out in faith and say, okay, this is what God has called me to, and I'm going to do it. And it may not happen in my timing. It's going to happen in his timing. How many of us have said, God, I'll share the gospel with my neighbor, but, man, if he doesn't trust Christ the first time, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, he better trust Christ the first time, or else I'm done. Right? And we, we impose all of these standards on, God, on our relationship with God. We want to set the terms. But God comes to us on his terms and not our own. And here are God's terms. You ready? God's terms for a relationship. Trust me. Trust me. That's it. That's God's terms for the relationship. God wants nothing more than for us to say, God, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. That's what he's looking for. That's how we have that right standing with God. We trust him. We say, I believe in you. You know, a lot of times we have, we have people, uh, I hear people say this, like, I'm reading through the Old Testament and I can't wait to get through the Old Testament and get to the good God in the New Testament. Like, as if there's these two different gods. I don't like reading the Old Testament because it's this mean, vengeful, like, murderous God. I, I don't, he's like wiping people out all over the place. I don't want to read about that God. I want to read about the good God in the New Testament. It's like, it's the same God. It's the same God. The God who, who walked in the cool of the day through the garden with Adam and Eve, who is that God? It's Jesus. The God who presented himself to Abraham as a fiery pot that, that moved through the sacrifices during the covenant that he's making with him, who is that God? It's Jesus the God who stood up on the hill overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah with, with Abraham and said, I'm going to have to destroy this whole place. I'm going to wipe them out. Who is that God? It's Jesus, the God who appears to Moses as the bush that burns but is not consumed. Who is that God? It's Jesus. The God who appears to Joshua as the, the commander or the captain of the hosts of heaven. Who is that God? It's Jesus. And the terms of our relationship are this, trust me, trust me. It's Jesus who establishes that relationship for all, that we would put our trust in Jesus Christ. We see this very clearly in Matthew chapter 18. You don't have to turn there. I love this story. Um, Jesus' disciples, you know, we talked about kids earlier, and if you're a parent and your kids are over the age of five, you probably get this question. Who's your favorite? Who do you love more? Right? I love to mess with my wife when we're lying in bed at night. Uh, I'll say, if there's a fire and I can only grab one kid, which one do you want me to get? And she's like, don't even, she's like, get them all. She's like, and I know, I'm like, I'm getting them all, but she's, I just like to mess with her. She hates that question. She's like, don't, I can't even. Uh, so, but his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, who's your favorite? Like, when you, we know that you, you've got a kingdom coming, and when you're in your power, we're all going to have power, so which one of us is going to have the most? Who do you love the most? And he's like, John. Uh, no, no. <laughs> he says, it says, at that time his disciples came to him and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this is what he does. He called a little child and had him stand among them. Come here, Emma. He says, unless you change... And become like this child. You can't even enter into the kingdom. 
Any questions? Unless you become like this child, humble yourself, you can't even enter into the kingdom. Thank you, Emma. You can sit. He says, come to me on my terms. Trust me. Believe in me. And he goes on to say this in the very next verse. He says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jennifer Fulweiler said, I had to set my pride aside. Jesus says, you have to humble yourself like a child and trust in me. Believe in me. And you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Who wants to serve a wimpy God that lets you set the terms? Who wants to serve a God like that? That's not a God. You know what that is? That's putting yourself in the place of God. That's that's for people who want to live with themselves as God and are unwilling to submit to the true God. That's no way to live. God, who comes to us on our own terms, is unworthy. But God not only sets the terms for us through Jesus, he provides the way. He doesn't just give us a list of commandments to follow. He provides a person a personal relationship. He doesn't just give us a standard. He provides the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to have a relationship with God, you have to come to God on his terms, not yours. You have to come to God on his terms and not yours. I'm going to ask all of us now as we... uh, take some time and spend some time in prayer together. They're going to turn the lights back down and uh, the worship team is going to come forward. And I just want each and every one of us to spend some time in prayer. And, and here's what I want us to pray. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, I'm going to ask that you'd pray this, that you would just ask God to reveal to you the ways that you're trying to set the terms of the relationship. You may say, I've got faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I've I'm willing to bet that there's some area of your life where you're trying to set the terms of your relationship with God. You want to treat him like that cosmic vending machine where you put the quarters in, you kick it a couple times, and you get what you want out of it. Maybe you're here and you've said, you know what, I, if I had a more loving husband, God, I'd submit. God, if my wife were more submissive, I'd love her. If you would give me kids that were better, then I would be a better parent. God, if you, would, if you would give me more money, if I could have a bigger paycheck, then I'd give. God, if you would just give me more time, then I'd serve. God, if you would just, if you would just give me success with the gospel the first time every time, then I'd be more likely to share it. If you would act in my timing, on my terms, God, if you would do this for me, then I would cut this sin out of my life. Spend some time and, and just ask God, God, what are those terms that I'm setting in my relationship with you? Would you reveal those to me as the band begins to play? And as, as they do that, um, they're going to play, and we're going to have as part of this time for you to respond. Um, communion is going to be up front because we, we want to celebrate the fact that God came to us in a very personal way.
He didn't just give us a set of rules to follow. He gave us a person. He gave us a sacrifice to receive. That sacrifice was Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We celebrated that last week at Easter, and this morning we want to celebrate communion. So as the band plays and Stephen sings, you can uh, feel free to, to go where you need to go, spend some time in prayer. You can uh, come forward as you feel led and receive communion. As you do, just say, thank you, God, that you have made this relationship personal. And if you're not a believer, if you would just spend some time and, and say, God, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. Ask God to reveal himself to you in a personal way. What is your response this morning? Just take time. You may want to come forward and just kneel at the front and spend time in prayer. You can move to the back. Um, We have communion set up in the back. You can move back there. Just take some time and respond. God, how is it that you want me to establish this relationship with you? Help me to establish it on your terms and not my own.